Heavenly Father, it is uh, once again an honor to come before you. It's a privilege to come before you. And God, we sing with the angels that you are holy, holy, holy. We love you. We honor you. We worship you today. And Lord, as we've been looking through your word and kind of dwelling on the theme of your presence, we just humbly, humbly, humbly ask that you would be in this place this morning. Would you fill this room with your Holy Spirit? Would you make the property that we are on holy ground because you are here? Would you speak to each one of us this morning, Lord, and teach us something new about yourself? Draw us closer to you today. Draw us to obedience to you and to your word. God, as we are in a, a, a weekend that tends to mean a day off for so many, Lord, we want to pause also and just think of those near us uh, for who Memorial Day means so much more. And so, Lord, we just ask for a special blessing to be on those veterans who have lost friends in combat, who for them Memorial Day is more than just parades and events, but it's grieving the loss of a friend. Lord, we pray for the family members, too, of those who have fallen, and just again ask for a special blessing to be on them. We ask that your presence would be with each one of them in a way that brings them comfort and hope. God, we are humbled as citizens of this country. Our, our nation is far from perfect, Lord, and we're so divided now, it seems. And yet, in the midst of even those struggles, we are so privileged to live here. We're privileged to enjoy the freedoms that we do. And so, God, we just thank you for blessing us today. Lord, I pray uh, for my time preaching, Lord, that my words would become your words, uh, that my voice would become your voice, and that you would just speak to the hearts of each one, Lord. Give us ears to hear from you today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in a series called Rebuild as we go through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 2, and we're going to look through verses 1 through 6. Um, so if you'd like to follow along, you can turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. Um, two quick notes. If you don't have a Bible with you and you want one, there are Bibles on the back table there you can grab. Uh, second note, do not be afraid to use the table of contents. Nobody will laugh at you. And again, if they do, give me names. Nehemiah chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. It says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought to him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. 
So I set a time. So we saw in uh, chapter 1 of Nehemiah, we saw the brokenness that Nehemiah was experiencing because of that failed attempt to rebuild the city. And he knew that an attempt was being made, and he asked somebody who had been to the city of Jerusalem recently, what happened with that attempt? Was Were they successful? And the report that he got back was not good, that the city was still in ruins, the wall was still torn down, the gates were still burned. And so we see the brokenness of Nehemiah. We see uh, this passionate, heartfelt, humble prayer that Nehemiah proclaims to God. And again, we just see that humility that kind of permeates all of Israel from that point on, from the time of the exile on. Now, as we move into chapter 2, we're going to begin to see the answer to that prayer. But right in the first couple of verses of chapter 2, actually the first verse in chapter 2, we learn something about God and his interaction with Nehemiah. And it's something that, uh, that I need reminding of constantly, and I'm sure that many of us do. In chapter 1, it says it was in the month of Kislev in the 20th year. And when I preached on that chapter, that, that verse, I said that's about mid-November to mid-December. Now chapter 2, as we begin chapter 2, it says in the month of Nisan in the 20th year. So it's the same year of the same king, but a different month. And that month, month corresponds to mid-March to mid-April. And so from the time of, of Nehemiah's brokenness in chapter 1 and that, that heartfelt prayer until chapter 2 when we start to see the response of God to that prayer, four months had passed. There were roughly four months between the time that Nehemiah spills out his heart to God and then God answers that prayer. And so as we reflect on our own prayer life as Americans, can I get an amen? We do not like to wait for stuff, right? How many of you, the microwave is just taking way too long lately, right? Back in my Josiah, when I used to watch TV, if there was a show on, it was on at 6. And if you didn't watch it at 6, you didn't get to see it. <laughs> Can you imagine? As we were talking about uh, the exiles and, and the nature of the exile, right, we talked about how the fact that uh, as uh, Assyria began to take over Israel, and then Babylon, I had that backwards, uh, Babylon took over Israel, and then Assyria took over, and then Persia took over. As they pulled people out of Israel, they were pulling out the best of the best. They didn't take everybody out of their country. They kind of looked through the population, found the leaders, found the, the brilliant people of the population, and they grabbed them so they could use them in their own government. So these exiles are the cream of the crop. So chapter 1 ends with Nehemiah stating, I was the cupbearer to the king. And I talked briefly about what that means. The cupbearer uh, famously would bring the wine to the king, right? So when the king was thirsty, the cupbearer would bring that wine, and he would always take a taste of it first. That was not the perks of the job. That was a security issue. So if somebody tried to poison the king, Nehemiah would get poisoned first, and they would be able to keep the king safe. So there was a, there was that responsibility. But the cupbearer uh, was actually a very powerful and prestigious position in that empire. So it was more than just bringing the king his drinks. Uh, the cupbearer would act as the CFO for the king, and he would have regular close contact with the king. So uh, although... Exiles were forcibly removed from their land, right? The best of the best would be taken and put into different jobs in the, uh, the other uh, empire. There was still uh, affluence and power involved in those positions. So Nehemiah was kind of like a prisoner. Like we would think of ourselves kind of as prisoners, right? And yet he had great affluence 
and he had great power in that position. Uh, it's said that uh, once the Jews were allowed to return back to their homeland, many of them chose to stay in the conquering nation. Because if you think about their context, they were put in positions of power, they had affluence, they had wealth around them, and when they look back at their homeland, their, their city was destroyed. They had nothing to go back to. So when they were allowed to return, many of them decided to stay right where they were. Um, it's unclear whether or not Nehemiah was one of those, whether he was staying with the king of Persia voluntarily or whether he was still forced to stay. Um, but the fact remains that he was still in that environment. Right? He had a high position in that environment. We'll see in a few minutes that the king held Nehemiah in high regard and seems to have had some level of respect for Nehemiah because what took place isn't typical for interaction with a king. So you have this, uh, this man, Nehemiah, who was taken from his country, but he was put in a powerful position. He had a great deal of affluence. And so we know uh, that combined with the fact that the king respects him, we know that Nehemiah was a leader. We know that Nehemiah was a man of action. Right, But as we saw in chapter 1, Nehemiah was also humbled. He was humbled by God through what he went through. But he was still a man of action. So consider that this man begins to pray to God, and then God makes him wait for four months before he even begins to see God answering his prayer. We tend to, I, I won't blame you, I tend to, pray something to God, and then I'm like, <laughs> I want it done now. Because I'm in crisis mode, right? If I'm praying for something, it's got to happen, right? If, if we don't have enough money for this bill, it's due. God, I got, I got stuff to do. Come on. We expect our prayers to be answered immediately. And yet Nehemiah, who was this great leader, this powerful man, prayed to God, and then waited four months before God began to reveal his plan. God works in his time. So I raised the question, I think it was the first week, how do we understand unanswered prayer? Right? Sometimes we pray to God and it feels like our prayers hit the ceiling and bounce back at us. And we don't know where God is and why isn't he answering our and this is one of the passages that will help us kind of frame out what does it mean when from our understanding our prayers are not answered? What does it mean when we pray something with all our heart and, and we devoted ourselves to fasting as a church, right, to prayer for our church? I don't see any new faces. What, what Did God not hear us? But God works in his time. Remember, as we've been looking at the words for love, that God is a God of action. God demonstrates his love, his ahava that we talked about last week. He loves us. There's an emotional bond there. But he demonstrates that love through action. God works in his time, but he will work in his time. And so part of our faith journey is going to be to begin to trust God more and more, that when we pray, God will answer that prayer. And it may not be when we like it, and it may not be how we like it, but he will answer our prayer. But there's a danger here. As we, as we kind of consider God this way, when we think about him answering prayers, there's a danger for us to begin to think of God as an idol, that God is like our wish granter, 
and I've talked about the, the polytheistic cultures where people would bring sacrifices to gods or goddesses because they needed something. And they were just hoping that by giving this god or goddess what they needed, they would get what they needed in return. It's kind of a business transaction. And we look down on those theological systems. We look, you know, when missionaries come and talk about different idols in different countries, we kind of look down on them. Like, well, how could they just have that transaction with an idol? And yet very often when we pray to God and we ask God for things, we have that same kind of transaction in mind. Hey, if I do this, would you give me this? So there's a danger of us beginning to think of God as an idol. So we have to remember that God will answer our prayers, but those prayer answers will be according to his plan and his purpose and his will and in his timing. But we also need to remember that his will and his purpose includes Ahava for us. It is his will and his desire to love us. And it's his desire to express that love to us through action. 1 John 1 declares that God is love. So love is defined by God's character. And God is continually extending that love to us in different ways. So again, part of our faith journey needs to be growing to trust God when we pray. Growing to trust God when the answer doesn't come right away. Or trust God that it doesn't get answered the way we expect it to be answered. But we need to trust that he will answer, and it will be with our best interests in mind. As a parent, uh, we can often understand that our love for a child often means we say no to things like ice cream for breakfast. Right? So I typed that up in my sermon kind of as a joke, but I asked JoJo's permission to tell this story the other day. <laughs> Mike's already laughing. The other day, uh, I heard Jojo wake up, and he came downstairs like he always does, and he jumped on YouTube, I think, and he was in the other room. And then all of a sudden, he disappeared, and his door got closed. And the red light started going off in my head like, oh, that's a little shady. So I went up to make sure whatever he was watching was okay. And I went upstairs, and I opened his door, and he's laying on his stomach on his bed, computer in front of him. And there was just some silly video playing. And I thought to myself, oh, thank goodness. He's such an innocent cherub. And so I walked over to talk to him. And he's laying on his stomach with a tub of ice cream at like 7 in the morning. <laughs> and I said, you can't have ice cream for breakfast. And he said, why? <laughs> he didn't understand. So now just before the service started, uh, this popped into my head, and I said to him, do you mind if I tell that story? I don't want to embarrass you, but do you mind if I tell that story? And he said to me, hey, when a kid needs his ice cream, he needs his ice cream. <laughs> As a parent, we know the plans that we have for our children, right? And we know that ice cream every once in a while in the morning could be delightful, but it could also ruin your digestive system and give you diabetes and all kinds of cavities and whatever else is coming up. So as parents... We step in in those moments, right? And we have to be the mean guy. You can't have ice cream for breakfast. I believe that God set up the world so that we can learn more about him through the way we live our lives. He says that we are his children, right? So now as parents, 
how many times have we dealt with our kids and gone, oh, <laughs> God will answer our prayers, but he will answer them in his timing and for his purpose and from a place of love. And it will benefit us, but it will not always look the way we want it to look. If we want to see our prayers answered, we need to trust God, but we also need to align ourselves with what God is doing around us. If we just try to live our own way, God won't answer the prayers we're praying because we're not thinking properly. The more we spend time with God, the more we spend time in his word, the more we understand what he's trying to do in the world around us, the more our prayers will align with what he's already doing, and the more we'll see those prayers answered the way we expect them to be. Remember the confession of Nehemiah uh, in chapter 1, verse 7. He says to God in that prayer, We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. And when I read that, it immediately brought my mind back to Deuteronomy 6.1, where he talks about the commands, decrees, and laws. And he begins to convey them to us. And that begins what uh, I talked about briefly last week in the prayer of the Shema which is so important to Jewish people that many Jewish people will pray it uh, in the morning as they start their day and at night as they end their day. And it's kind of a, a bunch of scriptures put together. Um, I read the short version last week. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That's Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, could be taken as kind of the short version of the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. And I want to teach you those words right now, because they're fun to say. It's got one of the <laughs> that we love. Um, but later on, there's going to be a test. Okay? So I hope you're paying attention. So say it with me. Shema Yisrael. That means hear, O Israel. Adonai now, if you remember, we talked about the, the name of the Lord. God gave his name to the Israelites. But the Israelites believed his name was so sacred and so holy, they will not say it very often. There's certain times of the year and certain prayers they'll pray that they'll say the word, but typically they'll substitute it with Adonai. So as we're saying Adonai, you can think of the Lord in your head. Adonai Eloheinu. The Lord is God. Adonai. This is the one. Echad. Echad, the Lord is one. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. You got it? You ready for your test? Yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> we talked about Ahava last week, that we demonstrate our love for God by loving the people around us. That's the covenant that God put in place. I love you, I ahava you, and I will demonstrate that love through action, through caring for you, through protecting you, for providing for you. But in return, you express your love to me by doing the same for the people around you. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus is asked, which is the greatest commandment? And he's asked that by a teacher of the law, right? By a lawyer. Pause for jokes. You insert your own jokes. But this guy, this lawyer, knew the law of scripture inside and out. And he was trying to trick Jesus. He was trying to one-up Jesus, right? And, and 
the rabbis were always trying to kind of do this. We're always having these verbal wrestling matches where they try to one-up each other with scripture. And so here this man tries to trip up Jesus, and he says, uh, it says, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What Jesus re replied to this lawyer was the Shema, right? Part, portion of that Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then the second half was from Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's that Ahava transaction, right? Love God with all your heart. And in that transaction, you demonstrate that love by loving the people around you. You show God how much you love him by loving the people around you. And Jesus is saying if you obey those two commandments, if you love God with all your heart and you love the people around you the same way, then all the other law is fulfilled. Every other passage in the law. Remember we said there's 613 laws. Everything will be fulfilled if you can focus yourself on loving God and loving the people around you. The longer version of the Shema includes uh, another bunch of verses from Deuteronomy 6 that I'm going to read. So this is verses 5 through 9. It says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your ha hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now, many Jewish people take those verses very literally. So uh, Sarah and I, we grew up in an area where there's a large Jewish population. And when I was doing pest control, I would say probably nine times out of ten or more, I would ring a doorbell and look on the doorpost, and there will be a little Hebrew scroll screwed to the doorpost because they're taking this literally. It's not uncommon to see more Orthodox Jews have a little box on their head because it says here, uh, where is it? Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your forehead. So they'll literally take scrolls of the law and put little boxes on their forehead. And they have these things they wrap around their arms a certain way, and there's all this symbolism built into it. But they take it very, very literally. And what God is saying here is that he wants all of our lives all of our beings, all of our energy, it should all revolve around obedience to God. And that sounds very strict. And we see these Jewish people following these laws, these details, and we think, like, wow, they're, they're really into this, huh? They're going a little overboard. But God wants all of us, everything from us, God wants. And I think too often... We take it too lightly. We take God as our wish giver, and we pray and we ask him for things, but we don't devote our hearts to him. And so in this portion of the Shema, it says, uh, to, when you lie down and when you get up, you recite these commandments. And so, again, the Jewish people will typically pray this prayer in the morning and at night because it says, when you lie down and when you get up, you repeat this prayer. So for them, everything, their whole lives, revolve around obedience to God. And for us, Jesus should be our everything. 
our whole lives should be centered on Jesus. But too often we live our lives, we go to work, we come home, we eat, we do our chores, we spend some time with family, we watch some TV to relax, and we go to bed. And it's so easy to do that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, because we're busy, because we're tired. But in the midst of that schedule, we've left no place for God. We have phones that are constant sources of entertainment, and we don't like quiet. So if we have a few minutes of quiet, right, what do we do? We'll sit there for like seven seconds and we'll like, I wonder what's going on on Facebook. <laughs> any quiet time, any, any time to relax, we fill with more stuff. We fill with Netflix or Amazon Prime or games on our phone or Facebook or phone calls or whatever it is. And we live in such a way that we compartmentalize our lives and our faith. And we live these busy, crazy lives, and we're exhausted at the end of the day, and we realize we did not fit any time for God in our day. But even that thought is backwards. And I'll tell you that I am preaching to myself right now as much as to you. We tend to live our busy lives, and we realize we forgot to fit time for God in. But what God is asking for is that he is central to everything. And anything else we want to do, we fit into that time. So we tend to just live our busy lives. We try to squeeze a little Jesus in every once in a while. We'll say a quick prayer. We'll pray for somebody. Uh, we might read a few verses at the end of the day or the beginning of the day. We'll go to church if the weather is nice, but not too nice. We compartmentalize our faith. And Jesus wants to be first in our lives. Jesus wants us to wake up and think of him and pray to him and spend time with him and ride to work with him and work at work with him and have those conversations with coworkers with him and ride home with him and eat with him and have fun time with your family and him and pray to him before we go to sleep. That's what Jesus wants, our everything. We should try to fit everything else around our time with Jesus. And I remember a time when I thought, well, Jesus sounds really boring. Like he's a little clingy, this Jesus guy. <laughs> because it felt like, well, how am I supposed to have fun? I used to love rock climbing. Well, now I'm a little rocky myself. But I had all these activities I love to do, right? Well, how am I supposed to do that if I'm spending time with Jesus? It just became, it, it felt kind of oppressive. But what I've learned over the years is that God designed us to live a certain way. And when we don't live that way, we run into exhaustion. We feel separated from God. We feel depressed or anxious. He designed us to live a certain way, and that way is with him. And so when we make him central to everything, and when we live in the presence of Jesus, our souls come alive inside. Something fills us with like this weird spiritual excitement that we can't even describe because we're with Jesus. And that is what true life is all about. When we pursue happiness apart from Jesus, we might feel satisfied for a time, right? The ice cream might fill us for a time. The nice meal might fill us for a time. The time with family might fill us for a time. Whatever it is we're trying to fill that void with. 
might feel okay for a time, but it's going to fade. But when we spend time with Jesus, our souls come alive. And then we can do all those other things with Jesus, but we're alive. Paul in Ephesians 5.14 writes, Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let your souls come awake just by being with him. Paul continues on, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Live your life in wisdom with Jesus and recognize that when you do that, your soul comes alive. That is true life. All that other stuff that we're feeling like we're going to miss out on, that's not life. Being with Jesus is when we come alive. So Nehemiah, back to Nehemiah, in confessing that the Israelites had turned from the Shema, right? we have not upheld the decrees and laws and commands of Moses. He's saying that we have not lived according to the Shema. He was realizing that the Israelites were living apart from God. They were not living in obedience to him. And so it says, In the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought to him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. And I want to kind of flesh out uh, culturally what's going on here. There is an etiquette of coming before a king. You don't just walk up to a king. Even our president, right, for as highly as he's respected in, in his office, the Oval Office and everything, right, people approach him a certain way. They address him a certain way. You can't just, like, walk off the street and knock on his front door and come in before him. There are channels you have to go through, people you need to speak to, security, all this stuff, right? Take that and multiply it by like a million, and then you're coming before an ancient king. So generally speaking, coming before the king was absolutely terrifying. And it was terrifying because it was literally life or death. If you do the wrong thing, if you say the wrong thing, if you disrespect the king in any way, they will very gently take you out into another room and cut you off. It was no joke to come before a king. So if you were uh, allowed to come into the presence of the king, you do not look at him. You do not talk to him unless he specifically asks you a question. Uh, I've heard that some kings, uh, if you came into their, their throne room, you would start at the door and you would lay down on your face, facing opposite him, and you would scoot yourself very slowly into the room, facing away from him. Because to look at him was disrespectful. To face him was disrespectful. You were showing his high position, your respect of his high position, by putting yourself as low as you possibly can. So Nehemiah had regular access to the king. He was his CFO, but that doesn't mean, uh, CFO does not mean BFF. He couldn't just walk in and, and chit-chat with the king, right? That's not how it worked. There are a lot of depictions of the king's courtiers with their faces or mouths covered. So they would wear veils, they would cover their mouth. And the thought is that a lot of that was to hide your emotion. It was to hide your facial expressions because... If you if you are bringing the cup to the king, say, and you yawn, what am I, boring? You're dead. It was like that. So they would cover themselves so that they couldn't even see what was going on on their face. They wouldn't be breathing their dirty, stinky breath into the king's presence. Right? There was such awe 
coming in the presence of the king. And it was expected uh, that everyone be expressing joy at just being in the king's service. So for Nehemiah to come into this room and it was he was noticeably sad was very, very dangerous. So him just coming into the king's presence in this way was very dangerous. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, I had not been sad in his presence before. Because probably nobody had, or nobody had in return to do it again. But in verse 2, it says, So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. So as we read that, we have to understand that, first of all, it's noteworthy that the king even noticed he was sad. It's noteworthy even more that he didn't just throw him out or worse, but he actually asked why he was sad. So that's why I said before, there was certainly some measure of respect that the king had for Nehemiah. Nehemiah had proven himself to this king as uh, valuable and as trustworthy. But that is why Nehemiah said, I was very much afraid. Because he kind of broke that etiquette. He went into the king's presence and didn't express pure joy at being there. He was visibly sad, and the king noticed. So he could very well have apologized and, and just moved on. He could have stepped back from the situation. He could have been thrown out. There's all these different scenarios that could have happened. But in verse 3 it says, But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So we have to understand how extremely bold of Nehemiah this was. It was incredibly bold for him to speak to the king, but bear in mind this is the same king as what we read in Ezra 4 before. That same king is the one that was told, this is a rebellious city. You need to put them down. And if you allow them to regain some of their power, you're not going to get the taxes and tributes and money and income that you're used to getting from them. You're not going to get it because they're rebellious. And so he put a kibosh on that. That's the same king that Nehemiah is approaching about the city of his ancestors. So this is an incredibly bold move on Nehemiah's part. But the king's response, again, uh, we talked about how fragile the empire was becoming. There were different rebellions here and there. Uh, and so the king politically was allowing some alliances to be made and some little freedom with people. So it may be partly that, that he was allowing Nehemiah this respect. Uh, but also it demonstrates this, the fact, again, that Nehemiah was valued by the king. That the king respected Nehemiah on some level to not only see that he was sad and allow it, but to ask him why he was sad and then to receive that answer and not do anything about it. On the contrary, in verse 4, the king said to me, what is it that you want? So the king had a willingness to listen and to, to hear what Nehemiah's goal was in bringing this up. And it says, then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. And I want to park there real quick. I prayed to the God of heaven, and then I answered the king given all that etiquette, given the danger of coming before the king, Nehemiah would not say, would you just give me a minute? What I would like, O king, <laughs> you would not do that. 
So we know that in the time between the king saying, what is it you want, and Nehemiah answering, there would not be a lot of time going by. So I imagine the prayer was something like, oh, God, he's going to kill me. Oh, God, please help me. Help me, kill me. Please help me. <laughs> it was an instant prayer. It was an emergency prayer. It made me think of 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Paul says, pray continually. And as a new Christian, I kept thinking, well, Paul's exaggerating. But I think that we can remain in kind of a constant state of communication where we're aware of God's presence, right? And I think what's happening here is that this quick emergency prayer, this, oh, God, please help me, was backed up by those four months of him fasting and praying and seeking God. That intercessory time was all building up to this moment. And I think Nehemiah recognized that. This is the beginning of the answered prayer. And so that God, please help me, was the short version, just like there's a short Shema and a long Shema. That was the short version of those four months of seeking God. Those four months of, God, that's the land that you promised us. That is the place of your presence. We want to rebuild it. We want to humble ourselves before you. We want to live in obedience with you. For four months he was praying those prayers, filling his heart. And it all came down to this moment. God, please help me. I think we need to learn from that. And again, take time to pray. Make Jesus the center of our life. Don't try to squeeze Jesus into the busyness of our life. Make Jesus primary in our life. Spend time in his presence. Spend time seeking participation in what he's doing and seeking out the provision to allow you to do that. And when we do that, when things arise, when we have moments of opportunity, God help me, is more than enough. And so Nehemiah utters that quick prayer before he responds. I think he's recognizing this is the, this is the opening. This is my opportunity. This is the only time that I have to share what's going on in my heart. So in verse 5, he says, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. And Nehemiah uses great wisdom in this request because as before, the king had already stopped any rebuilding in Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem was known to be rebellious. The city of Jerusalem, if it was rebuilt, would stop being a source of income. So Nehemiah doesn't say, would you send me to Jerusalem to rebuild? He appeals to the king and the king's uh, own culture, his own values. And he says, would you send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried? Now, in ancient times, uh, family was everything. My name is Scott Wills, but my name in ancient times would have been Scott, the son of Robert, the son of John the son of, I don't honestly know what my great-great-grandfather's name is, but that's how they referred to one another, because your family was everything. And when a family member died, part of your responsibility was to care for the remains of that family member. So the tombs were, were highly regarded. So when he says not just, not Jerusalem, he says that city in Judah, but then he says where my ancestors are building. He's appealing to the king's understanding of family, that this man, who he respects on some level, has a responsibility to care for the remains of his family. And so he uses great wisdom in that. And then in verse 6, it says, Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, 
How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. So we see for sure that God at this point is beginning to answer those four months of prayer for Nehemiah. For four months, Nehemiah looked for this opportunity, and God finally granted it. Nehemiah realized that Israel had turned from God. He realized that they had taken on pride. They had turned from God. They were not humble. They no longer upheld the Shema. God was not first in their life. Their lives were not centered around the worship of God. And so he confesses that, and he repents. To repent just means to turn. He's turning from his sin and to God. So he confesses, he repents, he turns from his sin, he turns to God, and he prays a prayer that's rooted in the promises of God. He looked back through Scripture, and he already saw what God was doing, and he aligned his prayers with what God was doing. And then when he sensed God answering, he took that bold step in a dangerous situation, and God blessed it. God honored it. But it all started with humility. As we continue to, to look to rebuild as a church, as we look to rebuild this ministry in the city of Wilkesbury, we need to begin with humility. We need to humble ourselves before God. We need to honestly look into our own lives and, and look at whether or not God is central to everything we do. Is Jesus first in our life, or do we just kind of stuff some Jesus where there's a little gap in our schedule? We have to be humble when we do this. We have to confess our shortcomings. We have to continue to pray for God's blessing over our church. And when the time comes, and I believe that time is coming very quickly, that God will begin to answer those prayers. We as a church, as individuals, we will see opportunities for ministry. And this time right now of humbling ourselves and seeking God and praying to God to bless us and to bless our church, in those moments, we will see the opportunity and we can boil our whole prayer life down to, God help me. And we can lean into those opportunities. And I really believe that God will bless that.